Yeah, it's that point where you're really glad your kids have aged out of runner's camp, right? Yeah, it's that point where you're really glad your kids have aged out of runner's camp, right? In front of God and everybody. I'm, I'm safe there too, brother. So. I'm in this little window of protection. Um, but the kids sing a song, and the song was the story of grace. It's the, it's the story of the whole Bible. And if you remember a few years ago, if you were part of our church, I kind of drug you all through kind of a race through the Bible. We taught about two, two books of the Bible a week, went through the whole Bible in about half a year of sermons. And you thought the sermons were long now. You should have been here when we were trying to get through two entire books of the Bible. But we likened the Bible to a drama in six acts, and uh, we summarized them this way. Act one was creation. Act two was uncreation, or the fall into sin. And the rest of the Old Testament is really God making, getting ready for the king, the choosing of Israel, and the focus is on Israel and her, her preparation for the king to come. Act four was the coming of the king as we enter the New Testament and the Gospels, the king and his kingdom, and the focus is on Jesus. Act 5, the good news of the kingdom is spread, and that's what the church does. And then the last act is the return of the king and and the end of the age. So we, as we think about where we belong in this, obviously we belong in Act 5. We are living Act 5 in the history of the world from God's perspective, where the church is spreading the good news of the kingdom to all peoples. We're studying the book of Acts, looking at how the Spirit of God accomplishes this mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom to all peoples, because it started in the book of Acts. This is where Act 5 in the drama started, Um, and so we've been thinking about that together. I don't know if you ever take the time to read the ingredients on the labels of the food that you ate. It's, it's kind of disheartening at points when that happens. Um, here's a typical example of a, of a food item and the list of ingredients. They're listed in the order of what has the most, of course, sugar, palm oil, hazelnuts, cocoa, skim milk, reduced minerals, a bunch of other things like that. Anybody know what that is? Yeah, wow. Um, yes. Uh, that is the, uh, the creamy deliciousness that you spread on your toast, some of you. Some of you spread it directly onto your tongue. It's, it's called Nutella, and what you don't realize is that the main ingredient, about 55% of Nutella, is sugar. Another 30% is oil. Matter of fact, it has so much oil in it. Um, yeah, Nutella, there's your Nutella picture. Um, you can set, this is actually Nutella set on fire. There's a video on YouTube of a kid who takes a lighter and sets it, it has that much oil in it. But uh, when you mix all these ingredients together, you have this amazing stuff called <laughs> Nutella. And that is kind of, that's the inner self of all Nutella eaters right there uh, coming out. Um, so today what we want to do uh, today, oh yeah, they sell it in buckets, by the way. You can on Amazon buy what is an, almost a seven-pound bucket of uh, Nutella, should you, should you so desire. Um, but today what, what we want to think about are what are the ingredients, um, really Paul, the Apostle Paul's recipe for the ingredients of the spread of the gospel that make the gospel spread beautifully to all peoples, because that's what we're doing, right? Act 5 of the great drama of the unfolding history of the mission of God, the church is taking the gospel of the kingdom to all the earth. And so today in Acts 21 and 22, we want to look at Paul's example in that. And I really want you to think with me as we look at these different ingredients that make Paul so useful to God. What I want you to do today is reflect on, is that me? Are these ingredients part of the recipe that is me? in spreading the gospel, and be very sensitive to what the Spirit might say to you, and how He might encourage and challenge you through Paul's example. But open your Bibles to Acts 21. Uh, let, let me pray for us as we dive in. God, have mercy on us now by Your Spirit. Um, call us 
more fully to be your people in this day. Um, the mission that you've given to us. Align our lives. Use your, your uh, servant Paul and his life to call us to be more like our Savior Jesus. So help us now, Lord, by your spirit and your word, we pray. Amen. We closed last week's portion of Acts. Midway through chapter 21, Paul voluntarily undergoes a Jewish worship ritual in the temple with a handful of other guys in order to quell false accusations that he was dishonoring the law of Moses and even telling the Jews that they shouldn't circumcise their children. And in order to demonstrate that those were false accusations, he submits to the elders' council at the church in Jerusalem. He goes into the temple to perform this ritual to kind of reassert his fidelity as a Jew, even though he follows Jesus as the Messiah. That's where we pick up our story. When the seven days were almost completed of that ritual, the Jews from Asia, okay, this is where Paul has been on his third missionary journey. He's been traveling throughout Asia and evidently, some of these Jews had followed him also to Jerusalem, perhaps for the Passover. But those Jews from those regions, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. This is not like, I'm going to lay hands on you and pray for you. Okay, This is, I'm going to lay hands on you and beat you. That's what we're talking about here. They were crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people, that would be the Jews, and the law, the Old Testament law of Moses, and this place, the temple. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with Paul in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple, into an area where Gentiles were forbidden. Okay? So, more accusations are made against Paul that he teaches everyone everywhere. Okay, that tells you that there's a lot of uh, exaggeration and hyperbole going on here. Everyone everywhere against the Jews, against the law of Moses, and against the temple. And again, these are, these are demonstrably false accusations. What's, what's Paul doing? He's in the temple performing what's likely an Old Testament ritual. Uh, from the book of Numbers, purifying himself to worship as a Jewish follower of Jesus. Okay. Not a likely candidate for someone who is trying to defile the temple. And uh, he, you know, he's clear that their accusations were really jumping to conclusions about Paul. He did not bring Trophimus into that area. That was a, simply a false accusation that these are not rational, calm accusations. You can see because it continues and says, the whole city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort, that's the Roman military leader, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks. And when he came, up to, the, came to the steps... He was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence and the crowd of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. So Paul is seized. He's falsely accused. He is seized. He is dragged out of the temple. The gates close behind him, shutting him out. And they are trying to beat Paul to death. His rescue comes as the Roman military commander gets word of this. And his rescue even involves being chained, bound with two chains. Uh, and I read that and I think to what we saw last week. Remember Agabus' prophecy that Paul would be bound hand and foot if he went to Jerusalem? This is the fulfillment of that. The mob had become so violent, the soldiers literally had to carry Paul away from them as the people cry out, away with him. Now, that does not mean 
take him away, please. That means take his life. And those words may sound familiar to you. They hearken back to another very similar scene in the back end of John's gospel. We, we read John chapter 19. It was the day of preparation of the Passover, similar time. It was about the sixth hour. Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. As Jesus was rejected by the Jews, Paul finds himself in a very similar place. And I underscored this last week. Paul like Jesus, was falsely accused in Jerusalem and put on trial. Paul, like Jesus, would be pronounced innocent and yet not released. Paul, like Jesus, would be urged not to go to Jerusalem by his devoted followers, yet he would go anyway. And now Paul is rejected with these same words, the same words that happened at Jesus' crucifixion. Away with him. So clearly, Paul is sharing in the sufferings of Christ as he enters into this ministry in the city of Jerusalem. And he knew this was coming, right? Earlier on that last missionary journey, he said back in chapter 20, Behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. This this, is Paul, this has been Paul's commission from the very beginning. Way back in Acts chapter 9, he has that dramatic Damascus road experience, the bright light and all that. We'll read more about it in a minute. Um, but there's a man named Ananias, a believer in Damascus, who ministers to Paul after that experience. And uh, this is what the Lord says to him, to Ananias. Go, for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. See, Paul's commission was that he was going to have to suffer for the name of Christ. And just in the book of Acts, just reading the book of Acts, starting in chapter 9, we find a, just a litany of suffering for Paul. In chapter 9, right away there was a plot to kill him such that he was lowered through the Damascus city wall at night in a basket and had to flee. He went to Jerusalem where there was another plot to kill him that was hatched such that he had to flee that city. In another city called Pisidian Antioch, out of jealousy, he was opposed and publicly reviled. He was persecuted and driven out of their district. In Iconium, people's minds were poisoned against Paul and they planned to stone him and he had to flee that city. In Lystra, he was stoned and dragged from the city and left for dead. In Philippi, he was seized, dragged before the authorities, stripped beaten, imprisoned, and placed in chains. In Thessalonica, he fled by night to escape the violence. In Berea, the crowds were stirred up such he had to flee. In Athens, he was attacked and brought before a tribunal. In Ephesus, people spoke evil of Paul in the way, and he found himself in the middle of a riot of opposing forces. There was a plot against him in Greece. Now he's back in Jerusalem. He's beaten amidst a violent mob with the intent to kill him. For the rest of the books of Acts... Paul will be known to us as Paul the prisoner. He never emerges free in the book of Acts. He is imprisoned the entire rest of the book. And so the first ingredient in the recipe for the spread of the gospel that I learned from Paul's life here is that a willingness to suffer, to obey Christ, is an essential ingredient. You know, imagine with me back in chapter 9, Jesus sends Ananias to Paul to tell him how much he must suffer for his name. And if Paul had said, whoa, 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 I did not sign up for suffering. You know, I'm good with all the hope of heaven and all the good stuff. I'm not doing the suffering. Or if when he had that first death threat, right, the plot to kill him and they lower him over the wall at night and he just runs away, just hides, goes to America, tries to live the dream, Right? A willingness to suffer in obedience to Christ is a vital ingredient in the spread of the gospel. 
And Paul's willingness to do this comes out, is undergirded in his later writings. He writes several things that help strengthen us and him in this resolve. In Romans 8, he says, he says it's worth it. It's worth suffering. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul, Paul knew it was worth it. He also knew that the comfort of God was greater than his suffering. He wrote in 2 Corinthians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort for which we, with which we have received ourselves have been comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. God's comfort would be enough, Paul knew. It would be greater than even his sufferings. And he knew that the church would be strengthened. He writes in Colossians, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. So Paul knew that his sufferings were for the good of others, for the good of the church. And it was worth it to him. And so stories of suffering, like Paul's, they serve to strengthen the church. And not just ancient stories, modern stories, they, they serve the same role for us. For instance, um, this young girl is from Uganda. Her name is Susan, and she is 14 years old. And for six months, she was locked in a dark room without food or water and left to die by her father. You think about that this Father's Day. Susan and her younger brother were both Muslims, and they lived alone with their father after he adorced their, uh, divorced their mother. Um, their life was pretty routine, school, chores, and a little time to play. But on that fateful day in March of 2010, Susan's life took a dramatic turn when an evangelist visited her school, and she decided to trust Christ for her salvation. She said she kept it secret for a month, but news then reached her father that she had converted to Christianity, and enraged, her father confined her to this small room. Her brother Mbusa was warned not to tell anyone that Susan was locked up and was instructed not to give her any food. Her brother tried to help his sister by roasting bananas when their father was away, and he dug a hole under the door where he could pour water through. He says, my sister could drink water using her tongue, but most days she could only feed on mud. For six long months, 14-year-old Susan never saw the sunlight. A nearby neighbor became concerned after not seeing her, and finally when her brother feared that his sister was dying, he told the neighbor that Susan was locked up in one of the rooms in the house. Alerting authorities, the police rushed to the house, broke down the door, they rescued Susan, took her to her nearby hospital, but in the process of being tortured and abused for those six months, she lost the use of both of her legs. Um, she spent the next 10 months confined to a hospital bed recovering. She was later transported to a home in Kenya where she now lives with a Christian worker and his family. Um, there, uh, when asked how she is feeling, she confidently responds, I am happy and not in pain. I would never leave my Jesus who died for me. She's 14 years old. Susan has forgiven her father and asked for just two things. She says, I would like to have the ability to walk again so that I can tell others about Jesus. And I would like you to pray for the salvation of my father. See, most, most of the hardship that we face is much, much, much less than what Susan faced and definitely what the Apostle Paul faced but their examples are intended to call us up to a faithful willingness to suffer for Christ in our context. If to be faithful in Christ means we must suffer, then we, then we will do that by God's grace and by God's strength. We can find the same grace in the same spirit to be willing to endure our hardships and be faithful to Christ even when our place is hard. The willingness to suffer hardship to be obedient to Christ is an essential ingredient for the spread of the gospel. Um, now Paul, back in our story, he's about, to be, um, he's about to be arrested down in verse 37. He's, or he's about to be brought into the barracks. He says to the tribune, may I say something to you? 
And the tribune says, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. So the tribune here, because Paul has been speaking, uh, in a, uh, or because it's been so riotous, has no idea who Paul is. Um, he, Paul says essentially um, the same thing he's saying with that act of worship at the beginning. I am a Jew. These are my people. And then he, he says something really stunning next. Paul says, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Paul wants to speak to the people who had just nearly beat him to death. So envision it. Paul's standing on the top of the steps where he's been carried by the soldiers. He's chained. He's likely bloody and beat from the beating. And he says, let me talk to these people. They're my people. Now, some of us in a situation like that would like to say some things to the people who just beat us, right? That's not what Paul means. He wants to share with them how they can have forgiveness from their sins just as he has found forgiveness for his own sins. Um, you have to wonder, what, what is going through Paul's mind here? These are the people who are his primary persecutors. They've been chasing him from town to town you know, throughout his, his missionary journeys. Here they are in Jerusalem beating him, and he wants to talk to them of mercy. He would write about these kind of things later in Romans 9. He writes this, and it shows us Paul's heart. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, for, for, for the Jewish brothers who, who persecuted him. My kinsmen according to the flesh. In chapter 10, just a page later, he adds, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul loves the very people who have beaten and threatened his life again and again and have had him on the run from town to town. He loves them such that he wishes he could take their place. He could be accursed and they could know the mercy of Christ. He is the embodiment of of what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Paul does that beautifully. He is doing just what Christ did, right? Remember on the cross? When they came to the place that's called the skull, there they crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left, and Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Willingness to love enemies is another crucial ingredient we see in Paul's life related to the spread of the gospel. Do you have any enemies? Okay. Do you have any enemies? And, and you might be thinking, well, not really enemies. Not sure they're really. Can you define enemy for me? Okay, whoever you're thinking about when you ask that question, that's who we're talking about. That's the person that Christ is asking you to love and pray for. The person who has made your life hard. The person who has caused you suffering. The one who doesn't love you back. The one who just takes and takes or ignores you. The one who is behind your suffering. The one who mocks and opposes your faith. Ran across a fascinating article uh, in a uh, I think it's called the a Athens Review. It's a Texas uh, newspaper about, about this guy. This guy's name is Patrick Green. He's from San Antonio. And uh, he was a notorious uh, opponent of Christianity in the county. The county every year put up the manger scene at Christmas time. And after one year, he threatened. He said, if you put that manger up again, I am going to sue you. So that's Patrick Green. But all that kind of changed back in March of 2012 when um, Patrick, who was 63, learned that he needed surgery for a detached retina. He didn't have money to pay for the surgery, so he had to give up his cab driving job. 
And uh, there's a lady named Jessica Cry, uh, or Cry rather. She was a member of a local Baptist church. She heard about Green's situation, and she told the pastor. And then the pastor called Green. And, the, and Green says, uh, "Look, if you really want to do something, we don't have any money for groceries." So he thought, "Maybe I'll get a fifty dollars worth of groceries on my step. Maybe a hundred dollars." He gets a check for four hundred dollars. That was just the first of many checks that would come to Green from this local church. This is what he says. I thought I was in the twilight zone. These people were actually acting like what the Bible says a Christian does. He's so amazed by the generosity of the Christians in Henderson County that he's telling the media, that's how I found the story, and he's thinking about writing a book Okay, And the title of the book is going to be um, The Real Christians of Henderson County, Texas. And now he says rather than remove the manger display, he would like to add his contribution. He wants to put a star for the top of the nativity scene. He says, however, you people can figure out how to plug it in. But here's a guy transformed, an enemy of the gospel, transformed by people who love the most cantankerous, anti-Christian guy in their community. Now, when you put these two ingredients together, a willingness to suffer in order to obey Christ, and the need to love those who cause your suffering, some of you automatically think of family. Because your family's hard. And they have mocked your faith. And they have wronged you. Um, Let me just encourage you that these two principles are your guide for the gospel to spread and transform your family. A willingness to suffer even uh, amongst your family in obedience to Christ, and a willingness to love them. These are the ingredients for gospel transformation in families. These are crucial ingredients in the spread of the gospel anywhere. So this tribune, right back in our story, he grants Paul's request. So now Paul is standing, bloodied and chained, and he addresses the crowd that just tried to beat him to death. Let's listen to what he says. When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, their language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew. Born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, one of their great teachers. According to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to the death, this way being the way of Christ, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed to Damascus for those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. This is the second time Paul's story is going to be told in Acts. Second of three times. Luke wants us to learn this. He's going to tell us this story three times. The first time Luke told it in Acts chapter 9 as it happened. Now Paul is retelling it. So if you want more details, you can go back and listen to the teaching from Acts 9. Today I just want to kind of highlight the progression of Paul's story. In the section we just read, Paul is reaching out to the Jews. He says things like, I am a Jew. He addresses them in their language. He trots out his credentials. He was trained under Gamaliel. He was zealous for the law. Essentially, he says, I'm a Jew just like you, maybe better. And he says, I I persecuted this way just like you. Maybe better. I went all the way to a foreign country to drag them back. Went to Damascus. Paul here is saying, me too. I was right where you are. Okay. That's the first thing he does in telling his story. In the next section, 
He talks about how he encountered Christ. He says, As I was on my way, drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. I fell to the ground, heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that's appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me, he said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So, Paul has said, this is what my life was like before I met Christ. And now in the second part of his story, he says, this is how I met Christ. And he tells his encounter of the risen Lord in the most dramatic of fashions. And then he is baptized, and his sins, he says, are washed away. And I love that expression. His sins were washed away. It's like you had a horrible stain on a garment, and you couldn't get it out. And it was washed away. It looked like new. Made me think of this little clip. You've, you've all seen this. Uh, watch it with me. It's not tied to the rescue, okay? It's not a simple stain on a garment. It's the deepest, darkest, most shameful things you've ever done. Washed away. Washed away. Isaiah, he anticipates this and he uses this kind of imagery. This is what he says. Listen to this. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Way at the back end of the scriptures, the, the apostle John is given a revelation, and he paints this scene. He describes it this way. He says, one of the elders addressed me, saying, who are these clothed in white robes? And where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Sins washed away. Though they are like crimson, they will be as white as snow. Absolutely gone. No trace. The deepest, darkest, most shameful things. Gone. Washed away. And this is the thing I see. The third ingredient I see in Paul's usefulness in the spread of the gospel is uh, he has a forgiveness story. Okay? You have to have a forgiveness story. Do you have a forgiveness story? Do you know that your sins have been washed away by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross? Do you have that assurance where it doesn't have to be through being blinded on a road or some miraculous conversion story but you do have to have the assurance that you have placed your faith and trust in Christ what he did on the cross and that by his work your sins are washed away and if you have that story are you cherishing it such that it's fresh on your mind because having a forgiveness story 
and being willing to share it even with your enemies is vital to the spread of the gospel. It's one of the key ingredients um, that you have transferred your trust to Jesus to wash your sins away. Well, Paul continues and he shares this as part of his testimony. He says, I had returned to Jerusalem and I was praying in the temple and I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, Jesus saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So Paul had this vision, this encounter with the risen Christ, where he is given a commission to bear the love of Christ to the Gentiles to people who are not His people, to people who are not like Him. And we see Jesus' heart here in the fifth chapter of this unfolding drama that all peoples should know. He's sending Paul out to the nations so that everyone will know. Now, up to this word about the Gentiles, they listened to Him. And then they raised their voices when He said that, and they said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. Quite the examination. To find out why they were shouting against him like this. Okay, because he's been speaking in Hebrew, and this Roman soldier has no idea what he's been talking. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? This man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came, said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul said, Yes. And the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. And Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him, which was against their law. To bind a Roman citizen without a trial and, or to flog him was a terrible violation of their justice. So what we see going on here is that Paul, in the last part of his story, is talking about the life that God has called him to. So first he talked about what his life was like before Christ, and then he talked about how he came to know Christ, and now he's talking about the life that Christ has for him, that he's living and that he's called to. It's a good outline for your story. You should be able to tell your story that way. This is what my life was like before I knew Christ. This is how I came to know Christ, and this is the difference that it's made. Can you do that? Can you tell your story real simply that way? You'll probably get a chance to do that in your small group this week. Okay. It's, it's a, Paul is sending us a great pattern here for it. And I think in this section, we find the last ingredient I'll underscore about um, the recipe to spread the gospel. And that's, that's wisdom. Wisdom on Paul's part. Especially wisdom as it relates to suffering. I want to be clear. I, we talked about Paul's willingness to suffer but he does not seek out suffering for suffering's sake. Okay. In fact, when we read those stories of his suffering, you see that he's often fleeing it. He's, he's being lowered down a basket outside a wall at night and fleeing. He's fleeing the city. Here he's leveraging his Roman citizenship to avoid flogging of the severest kind. Whips with um, nails or bones embedded in the end of it. Often it would result in a man losing his life, a Roman flogging such as this. See, Paul is not some testosterone-laced teenage guy saying, bring it, okay? Is that all you got? Flogging? Man, bring it on. I'm ready. Okay, he's not trying to be macho. He's not trying to prove his bravado, but he is willing to suffer if obedience to Christ requires it. 
not for suffering's sake. He is not what we would call a glutton for punishment. Paul will embrace suffering if obedient love to God requires it. In wisdom here, he knows that this is not what Christ wants him to do. He's been told in the vision, flee the city. And so he invokes his citizenship to escape this suffering. And so these are some of the key ingredients Paul models for us in this story. For the spread of the gospel. A willingness to be faithful even in suffering and hardship. A bold love even for enemies. A story of forgiveness that he is willing to share even with his enemies. And wisdom to know when suffering is needful and when it is not. Now I ask you to listen and think about your own life. Are these ingredients in your life as they need to be for the gospel to spread through you? Um, Are you willing to lean into the hardship and suffering where God has placed you and not abandon faith and flee from it? If you've got people who are bringing hardship into your life, are you willing to love them? Not to tolerate them, not to put up with them, but to love them, even as Christ loved enemies, just as he did when we were his enemies. And it may well be today that you, you need to just say yes to the forgiveness that is in Christ. You need to start your forgiveness story today, so that when you tell your story, you'll talk about what life was like before, and then you'll talk about this day and this service, how you placed your trust in Christ to be your Savior and have all of your sins, the darkest of them, washed away. Washed away. Say yes to needing a sin bearer, a Savior, and placing your trust in Christ. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and lead us in our response time. And I'm also going to ask our elders and our women's ministry leaders to come down in these front rows right down here. And they're available to pray for you. If God is prompting you about one of these areas and you want to ask Him to strengthen you in it, there's something maybe you need to repent of so that you can let these things flow into your life. Um, These leaders are available to pray with you. Or you can just grab a friend or a family member, whoever you're sitting with. We encourage you to respond. The front area is set aside here for you to, in prayerful response, say yes to what God is saying to you. So let's stand together and respond in worship and in prayer to what Christ is saying.
We'll do it real quick. This is to North Wake members. If you look on your bulletin, your worship guide, there's some important information under study, serve. Uh, the important thing I want to draw your attention to is this is the last Sunday of our serve signups. Next Sunday is our training. And uh, so far we have about two-thirds of our congregation, our membership signed up, uh, which is really good. That's a lot of folks who have already signed up. The flip side of that, though, is a third of you have yet to sign up. And so that's about 180 uh, members of North Wake that we really need to stop by uh, on the right side, right by the missions board, to sign up to serve today so that we can get you trained for your service positions next week. And this is really to do what the Roger said earlier. It's our opportunity to be like Christ, who served us and gave his life for us. So please do that on your way out. Stop on the right side. Me and Stephanie will be out there to help you guys get signed up for your serve positions. <laughs> 